This podcast is recorded and produced on Gadigal land as well as other parts of Australia. In the spirit of reconciliation, Women's Agenda acknowledges the traditional custodians of country nationwide and their connections to land, waters and community. We pay our respects to Elders past and present and recognise that sovereignty was never ceded, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. You're listening to It Takes Boobs, a Women's Agenda special podcast celebrating the strength, resilience and grit of women across Australia. Through this series, we challenge the typical sexist trope of it taking balls to get big things done. Boy, is that wrong. I'm your host, Tala Lambert, and this series is made possible thanks to our friends at Stellar Insurance. This episode deals with mental health and could be triggering for some listeners. If this episode brings up any issues for you or if you feel like you need to speak to someone, please call Beyond Blue, the National Mental Health Counselling Service on 1300 224636 or Lifeline 131114. In leadership, Antoinette Latouf has numerous strings to her bow. She's a multi-award winning journalist, author, podcast host and co-founder of Media Diversity Australia. All of this in itself is impressive. But it's Antoinette's unique ability to leverage her profile and platform for good, even where telling the truth is brutally hard, that sets her apart. An ambassador for Gidget Foundation, Antoinette has courageously become a spokesperson around perinatal depression after experiencing it acutely with her second child. In this episode, she sheds light on her story and why women going through similar situations need to be better supported in the community, at work and in their homes. A fierce truth teller in a world of Instagram fakery. Antoinette, it's so lovely to have you join us today. Thank you. I do want to jump pretty headfirst into your experience with perinatal depression and the way you've talked about this issue, because I think your honesty and bravery on this topic is ridiculously important. You shared all of this, of course, in the most raw way on the ABCs. You can't ask that last year. Where did you derive the strength from to do that? Oh, wow. And you know what, is it strength when I look back at that and think, damn, maybe I shouldn't have done it? Um, because sharing is really hard. And yes, it's raw and it's vulnerable and some say it's powerful and it will help others. But what it does is it means that you dip back into that really traumatic part of your life, which for some people is cathartic. But depending on what day you catch me and how my mental health is that day, I oscillate between I know this is reaching people who have felt alone or who are experiencing this at the moment and I know it's important because I wish I had someone be so open that I could relate to. And then the pendulum swings the other way going, my mental health is still an ongoing journey. I'm not sure I've bookended it. I'm not sure I'm okay. And sometimes when you put yourself out there, it invites lots of other people who relate to you and who send you the most lovely messages, but then to share their experiences, which again, dependent on your mental state, it varies how well you can respond to it. Also, I'm not a mental health expert, so that can be quite heavy to deal with as well. So to circle back to your question, where did I get the strength? I'm not sure because I'm not sure that if you asked me, would I do it again? I'm not entirely sure I would say yes, Mm. because it has been really difficult. Just even you saying shared it in the most raw way I was going to start crying like I'm not sure whether I'm sharing from the scar or from the wound so that's a very long-winded way to say I'm not sure that I am that strong or that I would do it again but I know that it has impacted and touched people and for that I am grateful I think you should be grateful and as someone who 
has certainly dealt with pretty crippling anxiety and insomnia following the birth of my firstborn. I know that hearing your experience and feeling your experience was a huge source of relief for me. So thank you. I want to ask you about those early days and the disconnect you felt when you held your second born. Can you share a bit more about what that was like for you? Yeah, so I guess for me it started at 36 weeks. And so by the time I held her, I had four weeks of inability to sleep, strange bowel movements, weight loss, panic. Mm. And so it was almost as I was dreading, I was (laughs) It's awful. Sounds so awful. Um, but I was dreading the moment that that would become a reality. And so the, the labor was quite difficult and I did lose a lot of blood. So I was a little bit woozy and out of there um, and out of it and not just really, not really in the room. Mm. Uh, and then they passed her to me. And, and, and to be fair, I was weak from a lot of blood loss and I held her and felt nothing and uh, quickly passed it to my husband. Yes, I had a physical reason to need my husband's help, but it was far more emotional and psychological that I needed. I didn't, I just felt nothing. If not, I felt fatigued and I felt sad and I felt, oh, this is, again, really awful to say. Um, I'd go as far as saying I felt a little repulsed. That is like the worst thing a mother can say. Because you're meant to have this bundle of joy in your arms and feel Mm. instant love and look into their eyes and feel that your world makes sense and this is what you live for and I am my children. And then here I have this baby while the the midwives are still working trying to contain the blood. And I'm just like, oh, take her. Yeah. And that goes against everything a mother should feel or is told she should feel. Mm. Except we know that it happens for so many women. So again, your honesty and being able to talk about it openly is so critical for, for so many others that are going through that and experiencing those same emotions. You mentioned there about, you know, the symptoms, I guess, starting when you were pregnant in those mm. last few weeks of your pregnancy. How long did that continue on for? It got worse for the following two weeks post-birth, but I would almost go back a step because the night I gave birth, that night in hospital, I had a real panic attack and I tried to um, I tried to leave the hospital. I was trying to find exits to leave. Um, I, was, I felt so claustrophobic and so panicked and so anxiety and the, the fear around anxiety is often irrational. There's nothing to feel panicked about. Uh, She latched on, she was sleeping, and all I was doing was plotting my escape route. And a midwife found me in the hallway and I had to be sedated and and taken back to my room. And so I knew I wasn't okay. And then that next morning I was like, we have to leave, we have to leave. I'm okay, this is second time, Ryan, let's leave the hospital. And I was Mm -hmm. discharged and I thought that by leaving that building I would leave those feelings. So that continued to to spiral and get worse over the over the course of the next two weeks, but I was desperately trying to keep it together and desperately trying to pretend to it um, to everybody that I was okay. Mm. You mentioned on the show that you had a moment when you're in the grips of it all where you really realised you weren't coping, mm-hmm. um, and you you reached out to your mum. Mm-hmm. What was her response, and and why did you call her first? So despite all the pretending, so by now it's six weeks of crippling anxiety that's tipped into depression. So first it was just panic and worry, 
which was something I was a little bit accustomed to, like I have um, predisposed to a bit of anxiety, but the numbness and the sadness and um, the inability to see the light in the day, that was new for me. And when it tipped over into really depressive and dark thoughts, that terrified me because anybody who knows me knows I have such a zest for life. Um, And that was when I really didn't recognise myself. It's when I had suicidal ideations and I couldn't stop thinking about death, either my own or the child's, not necessarily what I would do, but just I'm thinking, why am I even having these thoughts? It's very strange. And there was an instance, which to be fair, I probably don't want to go into, but where I began to go on the course of ending both our lives, that I thought, okay, this is beyond pretending. I reached out to my mum because I was driving. I think I was on the way to her house, actually. So I wasn't far from her. She was the closest person to me. And I reached out to her and my husband was at work. And I said to her that that I needed help, that I wasn't okay, that um, I don't think I said, I didn't say I wasn't safe. I just kept saying I wasn't okay. And then she rushed over with my dad. Actually, they both came over. And... It was in part reassuring to have them around, but then they don't understand. They don't have sort of the language or the understanding around mental health. So a lot of it was, you're tired. It's okay. I'll do the washing for you. So she came in and did as many chores as fast as she could, which for anybody, as you would know, that has a a newborn is an enormous amount of help, but you couldn't polish or scrub away Mm. what I was feeling. And it was a comfort, but then that then came with a lot of guilt because when the house was sparkling clean and the freezer was full of ready-made <laughs> meals, I still wasn't better. Mm. Can I ask about the support network that you you did find um, during this period outside of your mum and how it played a role in helping you through it all? I was really lucky in that many people who experience postnatal depression and anxiety, they don't have a village. And we are really raising children in little in silos, unlike any gen, like generation before us where extended families live close by and it was a much more of a village feel. I guess for me, I had a village. I had an involved and helpful mum, same with my mother-in-law, my husband, who is an amazing hands-on dad, sisters around the corner. I had all of the resources and the luxuries in the village that most people could only dream of. And so I was like, oh, well, there goes that justification or excuse as to why I'm um, feeling the way I feel. Um, But there are only some people in which I felt safe to talk about um, and not judged. And that was probably my eldest sister who's had her own mental health struggles. Um, My GP, I was very fortunate to have a GP who recognized it in me straight away, saw that I was very, very different to my normal self. Um, And I called a hotline. I remember in between my mother arriving to see me at that really dark time, Mm. I called the Panda hotline and whoever that helper on the phone was, is, um, is my little saviour because the words she said to me, which just made me feel so, like it made me feel that I can get through the next hour or half hour until my mum got to me. Um, and she said that this is not your fault and that you don't deserve this. And they sound like really simple, if not generic phrases, but you can't help when you're like that and ask like, why me? And what did I do? And am I not a good mom? And is it because I don't love this baby enough? Should I not have been a mother? Am I not worthy of this? And then that cycle of questioning and doubt. And for her just to say is that you didn't ask for it. Mm. You didn't consume something that made, like, you didn't 
accidentally eat too much salami and this happened. Like there was absolutely no reason for it, yet here you are. Yeah. And they continue to call and check on me because I guess they recognised that I was pretty um, quite unwell. Um, so, yeah, th- that was the immediate support that I that I received. Mm. I guess recovery from perinatal depression can be a gradual process. Were there any specific coping mechanisms or self-care practices that you found particularly helpful? Um, sleep. And that sounds like something really strange um, when you have a newborn. But at that point of probably my darkest time, what I ended up having to do was go on sleeping tablets to help me sleep at least for a week. Again, these are short term, maybe it was a week or two weeks because these, these can't be, these are not sort of long term solutions and can be highly addictive. Under the control of my GP and then, uh, then a psychiatrist, I would actually sleep in a separate room to the baby. When I talk about this, I refer to it as the baby. It's like it's something I don't even connect with. Mm. Um, it's not her name. It's not her. It's just this thing. Um, and so because I had such a problem bonding and that would increase my anxiety, I just couldn't even be in the same room as her. And so I think after two solid weeks of sleep and my husband would get up and do all the night feeds, I got stopped breastfeeding because I just wasn't functioning. And if and that's another whole thing that was laced with guilt, but I just mm. had to, to get through to save my life essentially. I had to stop breastfeeding. And so sleep was a big one. Um, but then it was exercise, it was medication, um, mindfulness. I was pretty much chaperoned by my sister for about three to four weeks until the um, antidepressants kicked in. Um, therapy. So it was literally like every resource. And I'm, I'm grateful that, and I acknowledge that I'm privileged in that I had both fa- family resources, financial resources. I had done lots of stories on mental health in, in my career. So theoretically, I understood the steps I had to take. So I went through and was like, right, I need therapy. I need a psychiatrist. I needed this. I need to sleep. I need to. And I went through and I did all of it. Yeah. Um, which is probably testament to my character, but that's also the sort of character that I later found out through my psychiatrist is probably more prone to postnatal depression, that I've got this, I can sort it out in a worksheet. Uh, these are the sorts of things that you can't plan um, and you can't to-do list your way out of necessarily. That checks out, yeah. <laughs> is there a specific moment or turning point in your journey here that you believe had a significant impact on you feeling better and more yourself? Um, After a month of medication, that definitely started to feel like my regular self. I started to find joy in normal things. I started connecting with my daughter and I started just to be me, like less kind of space cadet, miserable space cadet, staring out into nothing, skipping meals, not showering. Um, And I started to resemble myself again. That was sort of medication was the biggest thing for me because I'd I had been exercising before and I had been doing those other holistic I tried peppermint tea and lavender oil and you know I just I had tried everything um and that wasn't working at the most acute stage it wasn't doing anything and then there's other people who go oh you know it's really just hard you know the first couple of weeks everybody's tired or I'll send you to my naturopath and she'll give you some cinnamon rub to put on in between your toes or something. And then I was just like. like, Cinnamon rub ain't doing nothing for me right now. Like it was so acute and it was, I was, it was such a dangerous time for me and my daughter um, that, uh, yeah, no home remedy or something your great aunt used to swear by was going to help me then. It is mind boggling to me how many 
probably very well-intentioned people offer terrible advice during periods like that. And I mentioned before, you know, having really quite crippling anxiety, but, but really terrible insomnia. So I didn't sleep for a year after my firstborn was born. And it is that, that lack of sleep it just infects your brain and absolutely you feel like a zombie you feel like a tenth of the person you are you know wow. just a shell of a human walking around and and the number of people that would just say to me including you know healthcare practitioners this is just normal you're just tired and i'd be like no there's there's something wrong i'm not sleeping i'm i'm a good sleeper you know i yeah. can sleep anywhere most of the time I don't understand why this is happening and and I really need um, some support there and I think obviously things are getting better and that's amazing but I think we really do need to do a lot more to make sure that people are hurt women are hurt during periods like this and the right advice and the right support is is always offered yeah and I think that's a big thing just generally in the treatment of women in the healthcare system and there's so much research to back it that we're not we're often not believed that our symptoms are mm-hmm. either downplayed or ignored or uh, and it's 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 highly gendered many times that oh it's just a mood thing or it's just a, a just a normal mum thing and it's like no not sleeping for a year is not a, it's it's not an anything other than insomnia and that's again why I'm really grateful and I know I'm one of the lucky ones that my GP he listened, he believed, he empathized, he acted, he did all of the things. And I know that not everybody has that mm. experience. And he even realized how acute I was because often now, and it's probably even worse now post-COVID, the wait list for, to see a psychiatrist is months. And he was just on the phone because I remember saying it was a Thursday. And then I'm like, I'm not going to make it to Monday. I just kept saying to him, I, can't, I, just, I, didn't, I didn't know why Monday, but I was just like, I'm not going to last another, another weekend. I just, I just know I'm not. And then he just didn't get off the phone until he found a psychiatrist to see me immediately. And not many people would do that. And now I don't even think that there's that capability, even from the most well-meaning GP or psychiatrist, Mm. to have that sort of level of care. It's also, I guess, a reminder that we need to really invest in our healthcare system and to make sure that it's able to flourish and that workers aren't burnt out and able to provide the the support and care that they, Mm. you know, are trained to do. So... When I was thinking about my own experience after the birth of my son, I guess I'm still confronted by feelings of guilt and shame even three and a half years on. And as I said, I I literally didn't sleep for a year. I would be up all night, thoughts racing through my head, um, feeling like no day would be normal again. But I very rarely spoke about or acknowledged how far gone things had become. How do you find the boobs, I guess, in the context of this series? Um, to speak so openly about this issue. And I know you mentioned before yeah. not feeling comfortable, but yeah. that strength really does come from from somewhere. I think because um, there was so much shame within myself and or even within my immediate family because my parents didn't understand or believe that mental illness was a thing. And then this is not uncommon for people from migrant or refugee backgrounds. Um, and they looked at my life and thought that I had it very cushy and from the outside I absolutely did you know I wasn't a single mom I wasn't broke I wasn't you know like yeah all the things were very very middle class very privileged you can't rationalize it yeah Yeah. and nothing compared to the life that they had which was incredibly poor as refugees with lots of trauma real trauma from war and death and brutality that they witnessed and experienced like the stuff nightmares are made of is what particularly my mother has lived through 
So she, and, and then she had seven kids and she has had and, you know, continues to have a really tough life. And then she looks at me and she's like, like, why are you crying? Why are you sad? Mm. But we know, we know mental, mental illness isn't about how lucky you are or how much money you have in the bank or how nice your partner is or how cute your kid is or whatever or how well you're breastfeeding. I, she latched on perfectly. Yeah. There, are, there are women who were like crying with bloodied nipples <laughs> and here I had a baby latching on absolutely perfectly. So it, none of that makes sense. To somebody who, and not not just to my parents, um, a lot of people can't really understand and make sense of how you could be so down and anxious and and unhappy and detached. And so because of that shame I felt, and I remember I had a conversation with one of my aunts, she pulled me aside because my cousin had told her what was going on. And then she just kind of whispered to me, you know, I was like that. And, you know, I cried every day for two years. You know that they can help you now. You know that you, you can get help. And I just thought, oh, this woman... She lived like that. If, if I had to experience that point in my life for another day, I just can't even yeah. fathom it. That's why I've not had any more children because the thought absolutely terrifies me. And she lived through it for, for two days. And I knew that there were these additional barriers when you do have cultural taboos because you come from either, from, for me, like Middle Eastern lineage. And when, when I shared that story, so many um, East Asian um, and South Asian and all sorts of people were like, oh, my God, you are telling my story and that kind of pushback and judgment and misunderstanding is what I'm getting from my mother-in-law or my aunts or my cousins or my partners. In some cases, partners were getting in the way of them seeking medical help because they thought that, you know, you just stay home or, and pray and everything will be okay. And and I guess if I'm truly, um, I'm going to truly answer why I started to share that is why, because mental health taboo is a problem across the board and it is even more acute in uh, migrant communities. Definitely, yeah. I know so many people appreciate your realness on social media and across platforms you speak on regarding this topic, but also so many others that you speak about, often really quite complex and confronting topics. But do you ever worry about the backlash? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I wrote a book called How to Lose Friends, so <laughs> I am a bit of a pro on the backlash. Um, but, yeah, it's something that it's a balancing act that I grapple with all the time. In terms of the mental health stuff, when I started sharing about that, there was one of my husband's aunts who actually pulled me aside and she was like, do you really want people knowing that about you? Um, and 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 what about your children when they grow up and they, and they read and they find out about you? And don't you think it's aib, which is a word for shame? Um, so yes, there's the kind of the personal, those people in your, in your personal life who are like, oh, you should just, um, you know, stop talking or don't talk about that or that's uncomfortable. Um, and then professionally, when I talk about complex things in, in the public eye, be it, whether I'm talking about feminism or politics or racism or, yeah, I'm absolutely acutely aware of the fact that there are some things in this country that uh, public discourse would and power brokers would prefer remains unsaid. Um, and I'm constantly navigating how to do it and not be cancelled, and I haven't been yet, but there's definitely still time, um, how to navigate the backlash on social media by members of the public because I could be writing about anything. Like one time I wrote about beach cabanas. It was a tongue-in-cheek piece about beach cabanas because over <laughs> summer everybody was talking about how they're taking. Anyway, and then like. Are you pro or? I'm pro. I'm, pro, I'm really pro <laughs> cabanas. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm really pro cabanas. People were like, they're too big and people from the suburbs come and they, you know, and they have Taj Mahal. 
Some you know what's parents... too big? The rate of skin cancer in this country. That's what's too big. Absolutely. <laughs> right. And so even though this was a kind of a cheeky piece and I talked about how I, was, I used to, you know, I, I had changed because as a teen I used to lacquer myself in oil and bake it, you know, and fry in the sun. And even something like that, people can get so dogmatic and send the most awful messages. So if, if you dare have an opinion, but if you're a woman and you have an opinion, Mm-hmm. And if you're a woman of colour and you have an opinion, these are all extra kind of barriers and layers. And, and you know, if you know me, you do and you know my work, I always maintain a sense of humour in how I approach things. And despite that, I'm routinely referred mm. to as like angry, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, uh, it's, it's, you're angered by the fact I have a voice. Like I'm yeah. not actually angry. You know, if, if I'm on Q&A and I say something and I could literally be saying it like this and the tabloid press coverage will be like, she roared like all of those <laughs> and, I, and I go back and sometimes I'm like did I roar and I go back and I watch it and I'm like I'm pretty sure that's like a below average decibel that they make, like in my voice and so I am aware of that and it's something I'm constantly navigating and I have no doubt that I've had sort of like career avenues and things closed off to me because of the fact that I dare to think for myself raw. and yes, yes. <laughs> fake raw apparently yes. <laughs> that's what I need to put in my bio fake raw <laughs> Antoinette for listeners who might be going through perinatal depression or know someone who is what advice would you give them based on your own experience it's interesting that I'm going to give advice but my advice is to like don't give advice just listen and what something that I struggled even to do with myself even though I was the one that was unwell, is just to sit in the yucky feeling. I tried to run away from it, like I tried to run away, run out of the hospital and leave my baby behind. As a culture, we're pretty impatient and as a culture of like do better and be the best version you can be, um, we don't really make space for some of the yuck stuff. And I'm not suggesting you sit in the deepest, darkest depression of your life and just kind of mull in it and have a little sad party. But I think there is enormous amount of power in just feeling what you feel, understanding what it is. I was trying to run from it and I tried to, you know, exercise my way and to-do list my way out of it. And sometimes that meant that I prematurely thought I was better and I tried to get myself off medication or cut corners and then I'd end up at emergency at four in the morning. That happened at least three times where I'd have to take myself. And some as, as recently as about 18 months ago where I'd have to take myself to hospital because... Um, I just didn't trust my state or what I would do. And so if a patient or someone who's experiencing that is can be that ac- sort of acutely uncomfortable, then you may need somebody else to help you sit in that discomfort, to be there and to listen and to go, this is a moment in time. This is how you feel. It's okay. It's awful. Not, but it's because this. And try and drink this herbal tea. And have you tried this yoga stretch? And I hear hopping on one foot helps. And and even the most well-intended people, mm-hmm. again, we're trying to run from that discomfort. And mm-hmm. yeah, so like sit in the yucky parts with us because chances are we're trying to run away from it. And some run away by trying numbing it out with alcohol and drugs. Some mm-hmm. literally try and run like for the exit signs, like I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is so powerful, although tremendously uncomfortable, when you're listening to this someone's pain and anguish to listen and to go, I hear you, you will get through this, you will be supported, but I hear you and I believe you and that's mm. it. Not and I'm going to cook you the best shepherd's pie and I, you know, I'm sure a good meal will make you feel better. Mm. I think that's the best advice. 
the best non-advice I've ever heard. Thank you. Antoinette, we're so grateful for your realness on this and for joining the It Takes Boobs podcast today. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. 